0: Homecoming is a great thing, I love homecomings when our girls come home from college, it's always exciting for us, and, and uh, this week we had a homecoming at my house, and it was super exciting, Miriam and my wife Miriam and, and our daughter Elise had gone to visit her parents in Fort Worth, and they were gone a week, and man, it was just great to have her home. Mostly, I mean, Miriam is, is, was super great to like make food for me, uh, so that while I was gone I wouldn't starve, and that was awesome. Except I forgot all the trouble it is to like, you have to take it out of the fridge, put it in the microwave, you have to figure out how long, like a minute, and then it's not enough and it's cold, and then I think you can put it in for longer, but then it's too hot, and then the dishes after you're done, you have to do something with those, I mean it's brutal, it really is hard. And you're supposed to put them in the dishwasher, I my, I did that because it was just too much, and because the dishwasher, man, there are buttons on there and you're supposed to put soap in? I mean, really, good grief. So, it was great when she came home. I was much more excited about her being home than she was when she saw that. But that's okay. Today we're talking about this story. If you've been in church, you know this story. It's found in Luke 11. It's called, often called The Prodigal Son. And it's about a boy who comes home. Now, there's a backstory to all this. And so, we're going to talk about... Maybe the depth of the story, because I think a lot of times we don't know the depth of the story. It's more than a kid goes off and comes back. It is that, but it's much more than that. And so we're going to kind of unpack that today. And so Jesus begins telling these stories. Now, Jesus is the greatest teacher who ever walked the planet. I mean, Jesus is amazing. And he tells stories because stories impact people's lives. And this was a story that would have been familiar at least... His audience would have understood it in a sort of a depth that we're going to try to get to today, okay? So Jesus begins telling this story. There was a man who had two sons, and and this is super important. The the main thing of this story, the main point of this story is is that there's this father, and he really loves his sons. In, In fact, this family is part of a village, and... As part of a village in in the near mid east back in that day, it was really very community centric. There was a you know there was a village and there would be a town square and and business transactions took on there and everybody kind of knew everybody's business. That was the nature of a village, and everybody in the village knew about this father who had two sons. And this father he was wise and patient and kind and and he was disciplined and. And he was honest, but he was firm, and he's got two sons. And these sons break his heart, because sometimes kids will do that to you as a parent. They'll break your hearts, and he had two sons, and they both broke his heart, but in different ways. And Jesus tells this story, and it's... Do you all know about birth order? Like, if you're the oldest, you're a certain way. If you're the youngest, you're a certain way. Jesus nails this in, in psychological terms, when he talks about these two sons, now there's a youngest, and usually the youngest child is creative and unconventional, and they're tantrum throwing and they're rebel charmers. And the thing about youngest children, and I am one, we we kind of like attention. It's sort of how we roll. Uh, we want to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. I mean, it's kind of like look at me. We have this way of getting our way. We're a little spoiled. We're a little immature. We're a little entitled. We're a little impulsive. Look at me, aren't I cute? Give me, give me, give me. That's kind of the motto of the youngest child. Then there are firstborn in this story. They're the perfectionist achievers, kind of role models. They make up their beds, they get good grades. They, uh, they're kind of bossy. They're not always super kind to their younger siblings. A little bit judgmental. Kind of proud. Stop poking each other. That's how it works. Okay. Now, in this story, there's no middle child, but... In the birth order dynamics, a middle child is supposed to be the healthiest and most well-adjusted. That's what the experts say. That's what researchers say. To my middle sister, Vicky, I say whatever. They used to think the earth was flat, so I don't even buy it. But anyway, that's sort of the notion. So you've got a youngest child, you've got an oldest child in this story, and Jesus sort of nails it with the psychology of the youngest and the oldest. Now this is the story. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. You have to understand something. Typically, a person didn't receive their share of the estate until their father died. So by making this request, he was basically saying, I'm tired of waiting for you to die. I'd like my stuff now. Anyone in Jesus' audience and everyone in Jesus' audience, when they heard that sentence, would have gasped because it was basically saying, Daddy, I wish you were dead. I mean, it's troublesome honestly he asks for his estate he would have gotten a third of the estate the oldest son would have gotten two-thirds of the estate and so he's saying hey i'd like my portion of the estate now i'm tired of waiting for you to die so the father divided his property between them and not all long after that the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant Country. Now, there's an important phrase there that we don't want to blow past, and that is not long after that. There was a time, look, it's not like this guy had his resources in a bank someplace. Uh, He had to liquidate his his assets. He he had cattle, he had slaves, and if he's going to give this kid uh, money, he had to get rid of the stuff he owned in order to give him money. That's kind of how it would have worked. And in the liquidation process was a time for this kid. To reconsider. I mean, you know, sometimes you say stuff and you want to take it back. Have you ever said something you want to take? I mean, sure you have. And you, you said something, and he said something, and, and the liquidation process would have taken a while, and then the village would have gotten involved. Because who's this father going to sell stuff to? But other people in the village. And, and that would have been water cooler talk on Monday morning. Hey, did you hear, you know, Yosef's son wants his inheritance early and it would have been scandalous and everybody in the village would have known but the liquidation time was time for the kid to reconsider and maybe he had been a little rash maybe he had been a little harsh maybe this really isn't something I want to do and yet he didn't change his mind now I mentioned the village by asking for his inheritance early, not only was he dishonoring his father, he was also dishonoring his village. Because basically what he was saying is, I don't want to live with you people. I, I don't love my dad particularly, and I sure don't like any of y'all. That, that's kind of what this request was about. And for several days, the liquidation process would have taken place, and this might have been months, frankly, in a story like this, but eventually, eventually, the father liquidates enough assets to give the boy his share. And the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. He, he went to a diff- distant country because he really didn't want to be a part of that village anymore, and... As he leaves town, you can kind of see it, kind of a little cocky, kind of shakes the dust off his feet. He's eager. He can't get out of there quick enough. And this distant country would have been, now he's a Jewish boy, he would have gone to a country with Gentile people, people not like him, had different morals, different standards. And everything there was shiny and bright and self-indulgent and desirable and pleasurable and satisfying. And he is living the high life. But the money runs out, because the money always runs out, Uh, if, if, if not in life, in death. I mean, eventually, that goes away. And then the story takes a desperate turn. After he had spent everything, nothing like planning for the future, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. And I suspect that when Jesus said this line, he would have paused because it's really important to get the full impact. It wasn't a famine. It was a severe famine. And everybody who had lived through a severe famine knew what that was about. You read about it in the, in the New Testament, in the Old Testament. When severe famine hit, there was no government assistance. Nobody, was, FEMA wasn't coming in to take care of you. If there was a severe famine, it became brutal. It's dog-eat, dog, it's thievery. Uh, if you were a family and you were the father, you could sell your children into slavery just because you wanted to survive. They even at times resorted to cannibalism. It, it, it is We have no idea. Jesus' audience would have understood this. We don't have any idea. I mean, I, I think the, the best we could probably get close to was in, in World War II when people had to. Ra- there were rations. they rationed gas and food. Not very many of us have ever experienced anything like that. I've never rationed anything, as you can tell. Uh, No rationing going on much with me. But they understood this. And when Jesus dropped this line, everybody got real quiet. Because they knew what it meant for there to be a severe famine. And it gets worse. So, he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. What's the relevance of feeding pigs? I mean, he could have been... Jesus had... Uh, he had uh, he could go any direction he wanted to. He's the author of this story. Why would he choose pigs in talking about a Jewish boy? Because it's incredibly humiliating. It, I mean, to eat pigs was forbidden for Jewish people. And, and this was... There, there's low and there's lowest... And this is lowest, And then he says, he longed to be filled, to have his uh, stomach filled with the pods that the pigs were eating. But no one gave him anything. Now, it's at this point that the boy's heart turns. The most desperate time in his life. In recovery, they talk about this as hitting rock bottom. There's a place where you get to where it's like, I can't do this anymore. I've got to do something else. I've got to change my life. I've got to make you know, turn over a new leaf. I've got to do something new and different. And this is the low point for this boy. Now, here's what you might not know about this culture. If this boy dared to go back home, he had already insulted his community. I mean, he'd really insulted them. I want my inheritance early, and I don't want any part of any of you people. And as he walks away, he really doesn't have a lot of options about coming back. This is a a very visual culture. They would do things to sort of symbolize what had happened in a person's life. And if this boy came home and the village got to him first, this is what would happen. They would gather in the town square, and they would take a pot that, Maybe something like this. And they would, all the village would gather together with this pot. And they would say, you have bo- broken relationship with us. You've broken relationship with us. And we want to have nothing to do with you. And they would take a pot and they would break it. And there would be people in the audience going, oh, and... Uh, uh, They'd break that pot, and they would say, this symbolizes what you've done to your father. This symbolizes what you've done to us. You are broken beyond repair, and we want to have nothing to do with you. You're not welcome here. You're never going to be welcome here. And if the village got to the boy first... There was this ceremony. It was called Kizaza. And Kizaza means the cutting off. And that's why it took him so long to figure out you know what? At least if I go to the village, I have a chance. It's not much of a chance. And if the village gets to me first, there's not much of a chance. But he decides, and he makes a plan, and he comes up with a little speech, and he, he sees the village. Because can you imagine this? You know this is likely. I mean, you're, you're about to die. You're starving to death. You've got no options, and you're walking home, and you see the village. You see it, and you know that's probably what you're going to get. Which means you're going to go off someplace and die. But at least you're going to give it a go. You're going to make an effort. You're going to see if they might be gracious. But they typically wouldn't be. And he heads home. And he sees the village. And at the gate there's an old man. And he sees... Somebody coming, and he stays there every day because he knows if he doesn't get to his son first, this is what will happen. And he sees his son from a distance. And you know, you can tell people from like their um, the way they walk and their their posture from a distance, you can see somebody, and a lot of times you'll know, especially. Mothers and children or fathers and children. And he knew. And this is what happens next. While the boy was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. And he ran to his son. And threw his arms around him. And kissed him. And you have to understand the significance of this father running. This was a, it's a very, um, it's a society where fathers are revered. It is a big deal to be the man of the house in this culture. And a man of means like this would never run. He had, would have an ornate robe and it would be long. In order to run, you'd have to pull your robe up. It's simply not done by men because that would expose your legs and that was humiliation. Now, maybe a slave would pull up his robe and run or a little boy, but never never a man and never the patriarch of the family because that's just not the culture. And and Luke in this story, Jesus in this story uses a word not just run. It's more of an athletic term. He sprinted. He he ran as fast as he could. Because he needed to get there first. He, he needed to be there before any of the villagers saw this boy. He had to get there first. And so he ran. And he, <laughs> as fast as he could run. Because if the village got to him first, it's Kazaza. It's the cutting off. And so the father, filled with compassion, takes on the humiliation that should, by all rights, have fallen to the prodigal son. He takes it on himself. He humiliates himself by lifting his robe and running something the patriarch would never do, and yet he did it. And there's a truth that we have to understand in this story, maybe two. The father never stopped loving the boy. As ins- as insulting as it was, as humiliating as it was to have to liquidate your assets to pay uh, to give your son his inheritance, a- as degrading and and insulting as that was, that father never stopped loving his son. And though the boy didn't understand it, he never stopped needing his dad. He he thought he was. Independent and he thought he was living the high life and yet he still needed his son. And and the big idea of the story today is that our heavenly father's love for us is without bound. His compassion is beyond compare. He bears his legs and he humiliates himself and he comes sprinting to us when we cry for help. The son said to the father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. It's sort of a rehearsed. He's been practicing this. And you can imagine as he's starving and walking home, he's, he's going through this in his mind. What does this look like? What am I going to say? I've sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me, he's going to say, make me a slave. That's kind of the next part of it. He's already rehearsed it once. I, I want to, I just, will you just let me be a slave? Treat me as horribly as you want to. Make me the lowest of the lowest slaves. I just, I'm hungry and I need to be home. And the compassion of the father. He says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. One of the morals of this story is you don't earn your way home. You don't earn it. The father shuts him down in the middle of his little speech. And he just says, there will be no breaking of the pot today. There will be music They'll be dancing, they'll be feasting, but that which was lost is found, that which was dead is alive, and this is how we're going to go home. Now, every one of us has a story. Maybe you're in a far country or you've been in a far country and you made bad, really bad choices. You've been selfish, you've slept around, you've cheated committed crimes, ripped off innocent people, involved in a lifestyle that if we knew about it, or you think if we know about it, that we would be embarrassed for you. What you need to know is you can come home. You don't have to. You have a choice. The Father's not going to make you come home. The father didn't go to where the boy was. He didn't drag him out, bring him home. But you can come home. It's a choice, and you can. You might be like the older son. When the boy comes home, he's resentful that the father would be so gracious. And some people go to church all their lives, and they get so judgmental and proud They live kind of a church life and then they have a real life and it's not the same. Truth is, we don't earn our way home. We don't earn our way into God's good graces either by actions or by being like the older son or giving some speech like the younger son. We don't earn our way home. Philip Yancey, great author wrote a book entitled What's So Amazing About Grace. And he sort of retells this story. And if you'll indulge me, I wanted to read it to you because I think it's kind of sets it a little more clearly in our context. So give me about five minutes to read this. A young girl grows up on the cherry orchard just outside of Traverse City, Michigan. If you've ever been there, amazing, by the way. Her parents, a bit old-fashioned, tend to overreact to her nose ring, the music she listens to, the length of her skirts. They ground her a few times, and she seethes inside. I hate you. She screams at her father when he knocks at the door of her room after an argument. And that night, she acts on a plan she has mentally rehearsed. And she runs away. She's visited Detroit only once before on a bus trip with her church youth group to watch the Tigers play. Because newspapers in Traverse City report the lurid detail in gangs of gangs, drugs, and violence in downtown Detroit, she concludes that it is probably the last place her parents will look for her. California maybe, Florida, not Detroit. Her second day there, there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen, and he offers her a ride buys her lunch, arranges a place for her to stay. He gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. She was right. All along, she decides, her parents were keeping her from all this fun. The good life continues for a month, two months, a year. The man with the big car, she calls him boss, teaches her a few things that men like. Since she's underage, men pay a premium for her. She lives in a penthouse and orders room service whenever she wants. Occasionally she thinks about the folks back home, but their lives now seem so boring that she can hardly believe she grew up there. She has a brief scare when she sees her picture printed on the back of a milk carton with the headlines, Have You Seen This Child? But by now she has blonde hair, and with all the makeup and body piercings, jewelry that she wears, nobody would mistake her for a child. Besides, most of her friends are runaways, and nobody squeals in Detroit. After a year, the first small signs of illness appear, and it amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. These days, we can't mess around, he growls, and before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple of tricks at night, but they don't pay much, and all the money goes to support her drug habit. When winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on the metal grate outside the big department stores. Sleeping is the wrong word. A teenage girl at night in downtown Detroit can never relax. Dark bands circle her eyes. Her cough worsens. One night as she lies awake listening for footsteps, all of a sudden everything about her life looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl lost in a cold and frightening city. She begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty and she is hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls her legs tight underneath her and shivers under the newspapers she's piled atop her coat. Something jolts, a synapse of memory, and a single image fills her mind. Of May, in Traverse City, when a million cherry trees bloom, with her golden retriever dashing through the rows and rows of blossomy trees, in chase of a tennis ball. God, why did I leave? She says to herself. And pain stabs her heart. My dog back home eats better than I do now. She's sobbing and she knows in a flash that more than anything else in all the world, she just wants to go. Three straight phone calls, three straight connections with the answering machine. She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times. But the third time she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way, and I'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it hits Canada. It takes about seven hours for a bus to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City. And during that time, she realizes the flaws in her plan. What if her parents are out of town and miss the message? Shouldn't she have waited another day or two until she could talk to them? Even if they are home, they probably wrote her off a long time ago. She should have given them some time to overcome the shock. Her thoughts bounce back and forth. Between those worries and the speech she is prepared to give her father, father, Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Daddy, can you forgive me? And she rehearses the words over and over. Her throat tightens even as she rehearses them. She hasn't apologized to anyone in years. The bus has been driving with lights on since Bay City Tiny snowflakes hit the road and the asphalt steams. She's forgotten how dark it gets at night out here. A deer darts across the road and the bus swerves. Ever so often, a billboard, a sign posting the mileage to Trafford City. When the bus finally rolls into the station, its air brakes hissing in protest. The driver announces. In a crackly voice over the microphone. Fifteen minutes, folks. That's all we have here. Fifteen minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in a compact mirror, smooths her hair, licks the lipstick off her teeth. She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingertips and wonders if her parents will notice if they're there. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect. And not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepares her for what she sees. For there in the concrete walls and plastic chairs of that bus station stands a group of 40 family members, brothers and sisters, and great aunts and uncles and cousins and a grandmother and a grandmother, great-grandmother to boot. They're all wearing ridiculous party hats and blowing noisemakers and taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a computer-generated banner that reads, Welcome Home. And out of the corner of her eye, breaks her dad. <laughs> Through the crowd, She looks through tears and begins her memorized speech. Dad, I'm sorry. And he interrupts her. And he says, Hush child, we got no time for that. No time for apologies. We'll be late for the party. And so it is with God's grace. The thing that separates Christianity from every other religion is grace. We don't earn our way home. All we have to do is admit we have a need. And he runs to us. In Ephesians it says, it's by grace you've been saved. Through faith, it's not from yourself. It's not what you do. It's a gift. It's a free gift. And so many of us are so cynical because we think nothing is free. There's always a catch. And yet, in this particular instance, and maybe the only time in all the world where there is no catch, this is that time. There's no catch. No loophole. How many times have you been shopping? uh, The other day I was shopping for something online, and and it was like uh, there was something that I wanted. It was like 97% off. I was so fired up. And I click on it, and you know what? It's 97% off, except they're out of stock, and it's discontinued. There's a catch, right? There's always a catch, except in this case, there's no catch. That's what's so amazing about grace. You make a move, and God runs to you, and he welcomes you home. If you want to know how much God loves you, you simply look to the cross And Jesus on the cross said words, and I honestly I I just I can't even fathom the depth and the meaning of them all. But he says, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" And on the cross, Jesus becomes Kizaza for us. God will forgive your sins. All your sins. Any sin. And Jesus said something else. It gets even better. All who love me will do what I say. My Father will love them. And we will come and make our home. With each of them. That hunger for home. For some of us is what God wants us to be. Why haven't I achieved what God wants me to be? And for some, it's I've been so bad, I don't know that God can or will welcome me home. Jesus tells a story to people like you and me. And he says, Come home. You're welcome. You make the first move, and he will run to greet you. On your outline, I just put a little prayer. In case you don't know how to do this, and you'd pray, Heavenly Father, I'm going to make the first move. I confess I I sin. I'm, I'm a sinner, and I'm broken. And I ask you to forgive me. And I invite you to make your home in my heart. Everything we're about as a church, everything we're about as followers of Christ is in this message. Because people who are far from God can come home. No matter, they can come home. I'm going to pray. We're going to take up our offering. And then at the end of the service, I want you to know. I'm going to stand over here. I've asked Dwayne to stand over here. If you want to talk to somebody about coming home, if you would like to come home, we'd love to talk to you about that. If you need any other kind of something to pray over, if you want us to pray for you, or. But we're going to stand here so that you can have an opportunity to come home. Father, we thank you for grace where we don't have to earn our way home. Thank you for this message. Thank you for how much you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.